Today on China Talk, we're talking Chinese landscape painting. What a treat for me. With Joe Shire Dahlberg, curator of paintings at the Met, and Arnold Chang, a full-time artist. So this is a bit of a, you know, odd topic, I guess, for in, in the China Talk corpus, but I wanted to do a little bit of personal backstory about why I'm uh, really interested in, in covering this. So um, I had a really serious concussion over the calendar year of 2016 and was, you know, before that played around with watercolor a little bit, but the only thing that my brain could kind of handle was uh, graphite and drawing uh, black and white. And that, and sort of starting with like drawing on the left side of the brain and just like sketching around was like just the right level of uh, intensity that uh, sort of my, the creative, whatever neurons were left spinning on the creative side of my brain could handle. So I just got really into things that were in black and white. Uh, 20, uh, summer of 2017, I moved to China um, and having just had a tiny bit of exposure to Chinese landscape painting, I post on my Pengyo Chen saying, does anyone know a Chinese landscape painting teacher? I would really love to find someone to hang out and paint with me. And, you know, luckily enough, there was uh, someone out there who I met who knew uh, this painter named Ma Long, who is a uh, uh, 30-something uh, professional Chinese landscape painter, like pretty young for, for, for this universe of folks. And um, we would hang out every Saturday afternoon and drink tea. And he would try to explain things to me, but like not be super stressed because my Chinese wasn't that great. My like, you know, Chinese landscape painting Chinese was also not that great. Um, but it was just such a, a lovely experience of getting to um, just touch my toe into this, you know, deep, deep um, ocean of, uh, you know, of art and tradition and the, and, 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 and I think the sort of the experience of painting, uh, Chinese landscape painting for me, um, doing this sort of like copying the master's, um, model of learning how to paint as well as the, the kind of lack of stress that experience of, of, of being able to explore this, um, explore this tradition with a, um, with a professional in China was one of the most meaning, meaningful things that I was able to do in my, uh, in my short time before COVID, um, hanging out in Beijing. So, um, I'm really excited to, you know, try to share some of my enthusiasm with all you guys out there. Um, and, uh, I have, you know, two of the best folks that, uh, I could find to, to do that. Um, the Chinese communist party and uh, Chinese landscape painting. Uh, choose your adventure, Joe and Arnold. I mean, Chinese literati painting, both the collecting of it and the studying of it and the making of it in its original context was an extremely elitist art, perhaps the great elitist art in world history, because you need to have the best stuff from the past to study. And that inherently is going to coexist in tension to a people's proletarian movement and you know tracking all the way back to the early 20th century the question of what to do with this painting tradition that was inherited from the chinese past in a newly reconfiguring modern world order was like a white hot issue of importance to educators and painters so if you look at new culture thinkers um Tsai Yuanpei, even kong youwei is already thinking about what do we do with chinese paintings how can this be part of the future because there was a thought in the teens and 20s that all these painters were doing was looking at the past. And clearly, a modern Chinese art needs to look forward. And, there were, and it was a real crisis. 
I mean, people thought, do we have to throw this whole thing out and study European painting? Is there anything that can be salvaged? And there were all these different solutions to that problem. And we could talk about those if you want to. But all of that, of course, was kind of ramified um, with the Yan'an Forum on Art. 1942, and then going forward after um, 1949, the question of within the specific context of the People's Republic of China, what do we do with Chinese painting? Can it be useful to us? And you know, I know that you you had been looking at some of these paintings that frame the proceedings in um, the Great Hall of the People. These paintings that are of a whole different scale. Um, from the portable artworks and hanging scrolls and hand scrolls that we're, we typically encounter. We're talking about like 40 feet wide and 20 feet high. And those started to be produced in the 50s. And you have like a very famous one by Guan Shanyue and Fu Baoshi that is, um, it's called Changshan Rutsu Duojiao, how it's like how beautiful uh, these mountains and rivers of China. And there was, you know, one thought at that point about what to do with Guohua with with Chinese brush and ink painting was to have it glorify the Chinese landscape. And that's where you start to see um, this kind of muscular, overawing scale type of Chinese landscape painting. And, you know, people's mileage will vary with how much they connect with that, especially if they're coming out of this tradition of loving the Song Yuan Ming Qing masters. But it was an authentic effort to try to preserve something of this inheritance and to make it relevant in the 20th century. Uh, Arnold has a great uh, lecture on YouTube with how four four folks sort of navigated the 20th century um, because, you know, they were competing with socialist you know, uh, Soviet-inspired realism, right? And And figuring out how to kind of find some way to not be classified as the four olds and, you know, canceled in the most horrific way possible, uh, was a, was a real, uh, challenge then. And then still a challenge in different ways. Um, after Mao. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these, these questions were real issues that there were, were, were debated fiercely. I think, I think that, that a lot of people kind of, because China had been through the, through the the wars and and had been defeated by Western powers and Japan, you know they they were went through a period where they were reassessing everything, you know all of the everything that they thought what made China great was was under consideration for reassessment, and I think uh, a lot of people were of the feeling that you know uh, the West was. Super superior in terms of technology and education and 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 there was a, a a conflation of uh all different kinds of uh issues so they they assumed that uh that, and then there was a more of an emphasis on science and so they uh, to the more progressive at that time seemed progressive group they thought that that western realistic painting especially was more scientific and therefore was more modern. So they confused or conflated modernity with Westernization to a great extent. And and so there was a, 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 a real move to try to just get rid of a lot of the, the Chinese cultural traditions and, and start from scratch and, and emulate the West and to some extent emulate Japan, which seemed to have been able to modernize quite quickly in relation, uh, in comparison to China. It's interesting because at the time, what, what the 
the cultural leaders assumed was Western painting was realism. And yet there were some artists in China who, who recognized that more forward-looking Western painting uh, was actually moving towards abstraction, which in a way was more like what Chinese painting was about for several hundred years. Sure. So they, you know, their attitude was, well, wait a minute. Yes, we understand there are some issues of, uh, you know, all of this elitism and, and all this, the, the fact that uh, uh, Wenren Pua literati painting is, is, uh, is not accessible to, to the masses and it, it sort of goes against everything we're talking about in terms of uh, uh, modernizing the society. But don't throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. You know, let's make this great art accessible to the masses. Let's let's allow more people to learn about it uh, because it's something that that fundamentally represents the you know the the height of Chinese culture. Joe, you have an exhibition up now, which oddly speaks to the very contemporary question of uh, of 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 what artists do in. Uh, in in wartime and times of uh and times of real uh, uh and chaos i guess that you know briefly introduce what uh what what you're trying to do with this exhibition at the met and um you know how chinese painters have responded to times of uh war and dynastic transition over time yeah absolutely i mean so we have this exhibition in the galleries right now called companions and solitude reclusion and communion in chinese art and it actually originally was kind of a response to the previous crisis we were all facing, COVID, um, because I was, you know, in my bedroom for two years thinking about questions of engaging with the world or retreating from the world. And I started to look at the collection through this lens that the, you know, the Metropolitan Museum's Chinese painting collection. And I just was thinking about what a rich selection of painting and calligraphy and poetry we have that thinks about these questions from a perspective, you know, that really connects all the way back to sort of the fourth century Tao Yuanming's decision to walk off the job and go home and drink and uh, be away from society. And so originally it was essentially a set of considerations about when and how to be alone and when and how to be together. That thread overlaps significantly with these periods of crisis in Chinese history, especially uh, periods of dynastic transition. And you know, for Chinese painting people, and Arnold will certainly testify to this, some of the most chaotic periods in you know the late imperial period and the, the late medieval period are the times that we like the paintings the best. So the 14th century, the Yuan Ming transition, and then the 17th century, the Ming Qing transition. Some of our most beloved painters were working in those times, Nizan, Wang Meng, um, in the Yuan dynasty, you know, the late Yuan, Huang Gong Wang, to a certain extent. And then um, in the Ming Qing transition, I mean, all of our dearly beloveds, Bada, Shertao, and these are the very same painters to whom the new culture movement people were looking, that Arnold was referring to, who are looking for examples of old Chinese paintings that had a sense of modernity and flash and abstraction to them. And so, you know, it's it's not surprising that there's big overlap in this thematic show that's about reclusion and communion and when to step away from society and painters who are living through dynastic transitions. So for instance, I mean, if you come to the show, each room has a kind of sub-theme. 
And the first term is called Confronting Nature. And you'll see this one little album leaf by Shertao, the uh, 17th century painter who lived through the Ming-Qing transition and um, was himself a scion of the Ming imperial family. So it was very dangerous for him to be living under Qing rule. And you see this lone figure standing in a kind of desolate landscape, you know, engaging with things beyond the human and considering those. And that's a very seventh, that's a very typical 17th century type of response. Someone kind of living in a world that's rebuilding itself after decline, war, and in the process of rebuilding. And then on the other side of the gallery, you have two 20th century paintings made um, one probably late 30s, early 40s, and the other in 1942, you know, during the war, uh, one by Lu Yan Shao and the other by Chen Shotie. And these are both coastal artists who had to relocate inland. And they're also building on these themes of the recluse turning his back on society, heading off into the mountains to these like very um, symbolically weighty places, you know, these mountainscapes with Buddhist temples or Taoist temples, um, these, uh, you know, pavilions and gazebos on hillsides. These were the places that you went when the world is burning itself down. And this, these, visual symbols and these kind of poet, this poetic legacy remained quite immediate for 20th century painters. Yeah, even even for 21st century painters. I, you know, I think a lot of the great Chinese painting is, in fact, it's escapist. And I, I, I think that, you know, there's lots of different ways to analyze the meanings of these paintings and what the artists were trying to say and all that. But but ultimately, it comes down to the fact that they were painting as a way of just, it's almost therapeutic. Yeah. You sit down and you, you know, the, the, the cra I, I feel this way now, the crazier it is outside in the world, the more you want to just find a, a place of calm and peace. And and for me, that still is Chinese landscape painting in in these various stylistic modes that these early masters discovered. And it's not like I'm trying to be uh, Zhao Mengfu or or Dong Chong or something. But it's in fact that's the kind of painting that's soothing for me, and that it is an escape. And what's wrong with having an escape as an artist? Yeah, and I think it, you know, I think it gave the the Ming folks uh, who were who were watching their world crumble around them faith in their own universe too, right? Because it was a it was a real act of of sort of cultural confirmation that what they, uh, you know, that the world they lived in was uh, had traditions that were worth uh, pursuing and and um, uh, going forward. But um, I think there is maybe some aspect of the kind of craziness of the times that the folks were living in that either kind of like closed off the opportunity to maybe paint in the palace, which like meant you would probably do some boring stuff or, uh, you know, more boring stuff or just like, you know, it's, it's a stressful time. And, 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 you know, folks who are put under more pressure end up, you know, it's not great for everyone, but at, it's, 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 it's probably great for like pushing creative people to, to expand their, expand their boundaries and go even further than they were. I mean, these, these, if you read the, like the Baidu Baika pages of these painters, it's like one, like totally out there person after um after another and you know watching these folks take like 60 year vows of silences after um you know after their dynasty falls it's it's going to end up having giving you the sort of 
creativity and and will to to push past the you know straight copying that a lot of your um, contemporaries are doing and be able to get to a place where you're um, you're doing uh, big stuff. Anyways, this is why I didn't get a art history PhD. But my um, uh, my two cents. How, how wrong am I, Joe? No, I mean. Uh... <laughs> You know, I think that uh, serious times invest art with serious intensity. And, you know, you could apply that to any particular period. I mean, if we're looking, for instance, at a period like the 14th century, you know, there, there's a painting, it's not on view at the moment, but people can check it out on the Met website called The Simple Retreat. It's a painting by Wang Meng. So it's a late 14th century painting. You know, it's right there in that period, um, you know, where it's not clear if the Yuan is over and the Ming has been established because, you know, people weren't looking at the dynastic timetable that's at the front of the book that we have. Sometimes it's not clear which era you're living in, but it's clearly a period of chaos. And this is a landscape of great intensity. And, you know, the, the brush strokes are layered one on top of the other. The whole um, skinny vertical hanging scroll is just full of form and texture and pulsating energy. I mean, if it had been painted in 1555, you know, a period of relative peace in the middle of the Ming dynasty or, you know, 1740, you know, the, the Qianlong emperor is newly installed on the throne and the Qing dynasty is at its height of wealth or the 1760s or something, we would look at it very differently. We'd say, oh, it's a landscape painting. Look at that. Um, but something coming out of the 14th century, out of this context that we know to have been traumatic and intense and chaotic, we can see that other layer in it. And, you know, you could you could do that same analysis for 17th century paintings as well. Um, you know, how artists' psychology and personal experience comes out through the tip of the brush is one of the great riddles of, um, you know, for historians of art and for cultural historians. And so, you know, we can't always pronounce on what it was, but sometimes based on the inscription, we can have a go. Um, that's one of the nice features of Chinese painting is you can have a little window into either what the painter was thinking or what they wanted you to think they were thinking. And that can be helpful. Uh, what's an inscription, Joe? Well, so in Chinese paintings, unlike most European paintings, oftentimes either the person who's made the painting or later people will actually take brush in hand, dip it into the inkstone and write on the surface of the artwork itself. So when that's an inscription by the artist, it might be something as simple as a signature. It might have more data, a date. It might tell you who the painting was made for. It might tell you, you might have a poem, in which case the poem and the painting and the calligraphy interact to be something we call the three perfections, a kind of totalizing work of literati art. And there's a number of really great examples of those in the current exhibition. But then also later people often came in, collectors, um, you know, friends of collectors, connoisseurs, and they would write things on the surface of the painting itself. And that's sort of the world of inscriptions. And we sometimes call them colophons when they were written by later people as well. Arnold, I want to come back to you and like the kind of chaos, uh, you know, times of chaos leads to great Chinese landscape painting thesis. What, what do you think is, uh, what do you think was going on during these transitions? I, I can't deny that that it is the case that there's there's great paintings that are made during chaotic periods, but to me, I I I I, I fear that people will come up with some kind of cause and effect. Uh, really, an artist does what an artist feels, and we have to look at the works 
and determine, you know, why they're great, what what what's wonderful about them. And then and only then does does the, the background to me matter. I don't look at and this is why I'm not really an art historian, is because I don't really look at things I don't look at paintings in 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 chrono, chronological sequence. I look at I look at paintings at different levels of of quality. And it does it, it is the case that at certain periods in time, you know, there you seem to have a number of artists who are doing really great work and it is probably not a coincidence, but but I I think it it really goes beyond you know, because there were masterpieces created in, even in, in in the periods that we don't think were were so exciting, or 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 so. It's really the individual artist for me that's most important, and how how and why they got to that state is 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 interesting to look at. But I don't want to overgeneralize. It it is the case that that. In the you know we all tend to to like the same kind of painting. Joe and I tend to like the same kind of paintings. So I can't I can't argue that with the assessment that the 14th century and the 17th century, uh, you know, the, those are the ones we like the best, and probably before that the 10th century if we had more of them. So I I even go beyond this. I I look at it like there is a the 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 wonderful thing one one of the wonderful thing about Chinese paintings is that it is. Uh, and a virtually unbroke, unbroken tradition for at least a thousand years. So, uh, you know, because we're still working with the same materials, we're, for the most part, I'm talking about landscapes in particular, we're, you know, we're doing the same kinds of images, uh, the same kind of a brush. It's not like the technology of the brush has improved. It was just as good in the Tang Dynasty. And, and so... There just seem it just seems like there's a, a cyclical process that belongs to the art form itself. So every 300 years or so, you have a period of rebirth, uh, and you know, and and so that's something that may coincide with greater forces in the universe that may also coincide with with periods of of war. Why is it that we keep human beings keep doing make the same mistakes over and over again. It's just so weird. That one, I'm not sure we're going to be able to answer. <laughs> but but yeah, what I'm saying is that that you know the the it's almost like Chinese painting, Chinese landscape painting has has a life of its own. Staying on the sort of tradition thing, can, can you guys kind of talk about how these styles, how how things do evolve? Because I think there is a conception you know, a misperception that like all of these paintings are the same, which they are not. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, you do have painters from the 1700s saying, oh, I'm doing this like on the style of Nizan or whatever. Um, right. And, uh, you know, how do folks still spend all their time, you know, spend a lot of their time like looking at old scrolls and like copying them while, um, you know, bringing in new things from their uh, from their centuries? I mean, Arnold, as a painter, will have a, a, a richer answer for this. But my my analogy is that if you were to play for Su Dongpo or Huang Tingjian or a, another Song Dynasty gentleman, like the Beatles, and then Aretha Franklin covering the Beatles, they'd probably be like, Chabdua. You know, that's I don't really hear the difference because the frame of reference is so removed. And 
but for us we'd say oh one is clearly an interpretation of the other or you know you could you could flip it um any way you want to so you know in some ways that's what it makes it such an elitist tradition because it's in jokes on top of inside references on on top of in jokes but i think you know your listeners can kind of apply it to whatever they feel passionate about whether it's like sneaker design or contemporary music or anything and you know om- the homage starts to look so incredibly different from the original and the opportunity to add a little tweak endlessly dance classical music jazz it's it's in every art form um it's just that there's such a density of references to draw from in literati painting that for a 16th century painter to refer to a 15th century painter there was just um endless possibilities but uh, arnold you you, pro- you may have a different take well i would put it, uh, it just reminded me of uh, one time i was in china looking at a uh, at the occasion of a, a wonderful exhibition I, I think at the shanghai museum which which was a fabulous exhibition of works from uh, from the song yuan ming and qing dynasty so a thousand years or more worth of uh, wonderful Chinese paintings, and there was a symposium that accompanied this exhibition. There were a lot of uh, American and European scholars and scholars from all over the place and going there, and there were papers given and so on and so forth. And we went th- through the exhibition looking at all these wonderful paintings, and you could hear uh, a lot of the scholars were in front of these paintings talking about, well, is it genuine? Is it fake? Uh, is 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 this an authentic autograph work by so and so? And then I was I was with a with a Chinese painter who lives in Shanghai, not a famous artist, but uh, we were sort of talking, and he said, you know, uh, rather than arguing whether this is genuine or fake or or this kind of thing, imagine that. The same artist did all of these paintings, which are the good ones, and and that sort of hit home for me because I don't I don't think as I said I don't really like to look at things chronologically. It's like I'm I'm still still playing the same game that Nietzsche was playing and that Don Chichon was playing in their in their various times, and we're talking to each other across across the you know, the centuries and decades, and in, in my case, even across uh, continents. So it's it's like you you find the lineage you are comfortable with. It, it goes beyond just just uh, I'm imitating this artist and that artist. It's like why am I attracted to a certain school of painting or a certain style of painting? And you trace that back in history and you find where where you fit in within that lineage and and it has to do with something that's very deep and something beyond just uh you know an intellect it's it's partly intellectual but it's like these works speak to you like every once you get into this field you see you know not all these styles are the same and but but think about why is it that this particular artist really hits home for you there's there's almost like a resonance that the work puts out there, and because it's such a sensitive medium, we're really we're able to connect with with that individual artist's energy. 
and and so so that energy does you know that exists a, across time it doesn't end with the artist and i think that's that's kind of the approach that i take it's like i i i'm trying to do people ask me why are you still doing traditional landscapes and my answer is you know i'm just trying to do paintings like the ones that i really like my analogy of the kind of like tradition and the one that made sense to me is rap music in that, you know, there are rappers and they reference other rappers. And like, you know, if you're going to be rapping in 2022, your sort of cultural references are going to be a little different than if you're rapping in 1996. But, you know, you're going to be using the same, you're going to be kind of echoing phrase patterns and you're going to be echoing sort of like the way you ride the beat or whatever. And it's going to be a different, you know, it's going to change with sort of style. And I think the, the kind of evolution happens a lot happens a lot faster in the age of, you know, iTunes and Spotify, but kind of watching uh, rap music of a sort of cultural, of just like a community of artists who just kind of bounce off of each other and are kind of bringing things from the past and taking them forward and, and doing subtle hints, which like, you know, most people who just listen on the radio don't understand. But if you kind of have spent enough time listening to this music and listening to the classic albums, which the artists listened to growing up, you'll hear their conscious and subconscious um, echoes in their in their in the art that they put out. Right. And they can even sample from 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 earlier work and, and throw it in, throw it in there. So, yes, so imagine if you've been, if this process has been going on for over a thousand years. That's what we do. Yeah, it's the, I mean, I think the closer analogy, with the rap, the closer analogy is like uh, Chinese poetry, right? Because it's just like people getting drunk and like rhyme schemes and like insulting folks and like hanging out with your friends and, and, um, uh, and uh, you know, having these like, you know, I, there's like a little more culture, I guess, of like it having like, you know, allusions to uh, very like high class allusions to things. But I do think that that probably is like the tighter wrapped to Chinese poetry as opposed to wrapped to traditional Chinese painting. I don't know. I think they both can stand in, especially if you consider the DJ's perspective, because half the fun of crate digging is to pull out, you know, some 70s record that nobody else has. That's the Wang Meng in your collection. And then you pull out three seconds and you loop it and then you loop it back on itself and you speed it up to like 175 BPM. Um, that's the kind of thing that, you know, one person out there is going to know the record, but they won't have it in their collection. It's going to upset them that they don't have it. And so, but you're, you know, there's, there's an element of competition. There's an element of kind of embedded intertextuality. Um, I, I think your hip hop analogy stands. All right, Joe, can I be your intern? <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's like when i recently wrote wrote something about cc wong's late calligraphy and i compared it to graffiti which which he would have been, he would have seen uh you know in the 80s uh, all over manhattan on any any blank wall and on the subway cars and he started doing this this really kind of cool uh calligraphy that was was very much like some of the you know, hip hop graffiti kind of stuff you you see, and and I don't, I wouldn't say he was directly influenced, but it was a you know, it was something that was sort of everywhere. Joe, job talk. I have no idea how a exhibition gets made and put together. Like, do you have to like pitch it? Does like do, does like the Met always give you one Chinese landscape one a year? Do you have a budget? Like what what's like the politics of of making something like uh 
like this exhibition come to light in a um uh, in a large institution like the Met? You know, just a little bit of context. The the exhibition is in this eight thousand square foot space, and because Chinese paintings are on paper and silk and they're light sensitive, we are constantly rotating what's on view in those galleries, and so. The exhibitions are about five months in length. Sometimes, as is the case with this one, I may have enough artworks to install the theme more than once. And so it's a single thematic exhibition with two rotations, we call them. And uh, each of those will be about five months. But because of the light sensitivity of the artworks in question, I, uh, you know, just my great joy and challenge to come up with something new every five months to install the 8,000 square feet. So you're going to get about 50 to 80 different Chinese paintings than the ones you saw in the first half of the year every time that you come to the museum. And so I am constantly thinking of new ideas for how to install the space. And I know that we have like real Chinese painting heads who need this space. It's the largest space outside of East Asia for the regular display of Chinese painting and calligraphy. And so I consider it this enormous responsibility to kind of give the people what they want. Um, you know, people like you, Jordan, people like Arnold, who's been coming to these galleries since before they were these galleries. Um, you know, people expect to see Chinese paintings when they come to the Met. And I try to do a few different things when I come up with my themes. I mean, one is the theme needs to be pretty broad because 8,000 square feet is a lot of square feet. And so it can't be, you know, like I, I'm starting to, this is just out of left field, but I've been thinking a lot about how many of our Chinese landscape paintings are actually night scenes. They're actually meant to be seen as if under moonlight. And it's something I've been thinking about more and more and finding more and more of. I will never find 8,000 square feet of moonlight paintings though to do a show about that little theme i could i could do one little gallery on it but so you, you won't be seeing that show coming to the met as a standalone anytime soon i would need to embed it within a larger theme and so the themes tend to be fairly expansive i will write up an exhibition proposal and bring it to the head of the department and then i'll present it to the larger uh, group of departments with whom we collaborate. So that's the exhibitions department and the design department and everybody else. And I'll get some feedback on it. Um, the feedback is not usually, this isn't going to work for us. Go back to the drawing board because um, they're very permissive uh, with with my cockamamie ideas. But you know, as Arnold said, this is an incredibly rich collection of Chinese painting and calligraphy. And so you know, I think about bringing paintings that haven't been on view recently on view, partly because we want to rest the ones that have been on view and partly to, again, give the people what they want, new stuff they haven't seen in a while, maybe show some paintings that have never been shown before, um, thematic coherence, and then, you know, the occasion when we get to really contribute to sort of active scholarly discussion and debate, that's nice to do too. And then ever so rarely, we can do something like Companions in Solitude, where there's a real authentic tie-in to some kind of urgent issues that people are thinking about in their own daily lives on the ground in 2022. And so I hope that, you know, it's, I don't lean on it that heavily in the labels in the show, but I hope to like make space for people to have those thoughts if they want them. And usually, you know, the process will take, you know, right now I am I have basically a firm checklist for the next exhibition, which will be open in September. But the checklist for the exhibition after that is very squishy. Let's talk about let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, this is like this is like hot worldwide. I remember going to the uh, 
what's the what's the museum in Pennsylvania where like everything's like spread out everywhere? Museum in Pennsylvania where everything's spread out on everywhere. the walls, and there's like eighty paintings on one wall. Oh, the barns. Yeah, I, I remember going to the barns like fifteen years ago and having my mind blown. And now all of a sudden, like everyone's doing this. Um, what 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 gives, Joe? Why do you think um, kind of like having like you know, works from different eras speaking to each other is the, uh, is the, is the new trend in curation. You know, back in 20, like the early 2010s, um, the late aughts, especially curators of East Asian art start to experiment a lot with inserting some, you know, contemporary 21st century works alongside older works. And I think part of it um, came from the fact that, you know, we have this lucky position, but it's also, you know, it, it reflects the Eurocentrism of the discipline in the United States that a lot of times, you know, curators of East Asian art or Asian art generally have to be generalists. And so where, you know, in an institution that may have five curators of European paintings, there's probably only going to be a single curator of Chinese painting. And so if there is a curator of Chinese painting, sometimes it'll just be a curator of Asian art more generally. And so, you know, the the eye angle of curators of Asian art especially was pretty broad. And so folks started to include, I think, you know, where they thought it would illuminate the classical artwork, they would include some contemporary artworks. And it really did coalesce into kind of like a house style of, I would say, European and American curating for a while. Um, as far as including the 19th and 20th century things as part of a conversation or continuum with, you know, more distant pre-modern objects, you know, that's something that, that ironically, people were even more reluctant to do than including, say, a 21st century piece with a 17th century piece. I think connecting a kind of unbroken conversation through from the end, you know, what was previously considered the end of painting history, the 18th century through into the 20th, that somehow has been that the bigger lift. And so I've been really interested in trying to point out those 19th century artists who are pushing against tradition or building upon it, because then it sets you up for the new culture thinkers who are, you know, they're having this crisis about what do we do with Chinese painting? And all of a sudden the stakes and the relationships come through I hope in an exciting way, you know, as long as you have the paintings to do it. And so that's the trick is to make sure that we're representing the 19th century and the early 20th with works of sufficient quality. But yeah, I think it goes back to just the generalist quality of a lot of curators of um, Asian art in U.S. institutions. My colleagues in Chinese institutions who focus on pre-modern art, a lot of them are like, what is what are you doing with all this contemporary stuff? What does this have to do? with pre-modern Chinese painting because they specialize, they have the opportunity to specialize with say 30 people in the department of painting and calligraphy in their institution. You know, I think there's also an issue that's, that's quite important is that for many curators, for many collectors, and for many artists, there really is a, a break where at some, because China was, mainland China was closed off uh, you know, to the West for so long. And then they got in, there was a point at which uh, this, what we call traditional Chinese painting was was pretty much uh, discouraged, if if not banned outright. And they, they were doing, um, you know, socialist, realist inspired oil painting and so forth. So there was a period, as particularly in the mainland, where they worked 
doing this sort of, you know, pre-modern painting. So, so everybody assumed, well, that that's not done anymore. And then they, when China opened up, you have all these great contemporary Chinese artists who who enter the mainstream of contemporary art. So there's a whole category of Chinese art that is contemporary and more international. And I think um, so. People just assume, well, anything that's so-called traditional that must be from the past. And so you you know now we some of these artists can be shown in the context of contemporary art. And then the other stuff is 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 historical. So unfortunately, the 19th century and the early 20th century got left out of, of the discussion entirely. And uh, when you look at 19th century painting in particular, you know, scholars would be looking, everybody's always looking for the for the new trend. So even in 20th century painting, the, the artists who are featured are the ones who are doing something radically different. And so you don't necessarily see that that connection between the the past all the way through to the present, and I think that's being reevaluated now. Arnold, because you mentioned uh, you know Chinese oil realism, I I'm going to tell this anecdote because I don't know when else I'll be able to. Uh, I was walking around Beidou campus my uh, fall. My, it was like. First week of school, I was at the club fair, and I kind of noticed that there was like a guy who took a photo of me with an SLR camera, a guy in his 50s or 60s. I was sort of confused what he was doing there at the time. Fast forward a year later, there is an exhibition uh, in honor of Peking University's 120th year anniversary, and I walk through it, and all of a sudden, I see myself in larger-than-life oil format. Um and uh, it was it was maybe like 12 feet by 20 feet. I currently they, they ended up making a lot of tchotchkes out of it. So I now have myself on a mouse pad. Oh, my gosh. And it and, you know, I really appreciate it. The guy made my arm look way bigger than it does. Usually I was <laughs> wearing a um uh, a Punahou Barack Obama basketball jersey. Um, so I was I was bare armed at the time. And, um, yeah, it was really weird both to see myself an enormous thing. And also just like the fact that, you know, real hyper-realistic, um, larger than life oil painting in what year was this? 2018 was like the preferred, uh, you know, visual format that this university chose to, um, commemorate itself as. So I don't know, no question, maybe thoughts, responses. No, yeah, I mean, there, there was this real disjuncture and, and a lot of the, you know, these contemporary artists that I was mentioning, you know, they're, they're sort of approach. It's, it's interesting to, from their perspective that, you know, because China was so closed off and then suddenly after Nixon and, uh, you know, and then more recently when they really get, get a chance to go uh, abroad and, and see stuff. I mean, some of these younger artists were, were, approaching contemporary art, they really didn't have any background in, in traditional Chinese art at all. And, and so they're sort of coming in post-Warhol as, as uh, you know, their starting point is, is like Andy Warhol and they take it from there. So naturally, the kind of work they're going to be doing is, is going to be very, very different, clearly. And so I, it, it makes me realize how, what, a, what a, a strange historical accident 
it happened that allowed me to, you know, a kid who grew up in New York City to study with this great master named C.C. Wong, who had this great collection, uh, who happened to to come to New York. Uh, It's just, and and I got as close to this kind of a, a literati education as one could get. Probably there are very few people of my age, my generation, who were, who were brought up at the same time in, in China, who got the same sort of education because they were learning oil painting. So it's, it's, it's kind of ironic almost that I'm the one who's, who's so attached to the, the more traditional styles and the more traditional methods. Not to be always harping on the first 20 years of the 20th century, but I mean, there was a real thought that you had to toss out all of this stuff, um, even before Guohua was a concept, and that oil painting and a, like a classical French academic realist education was the way to go. And I think you see the legacy of that kind of double helix with the Soviet socialist realist training that so many people who came through art academies in, the, in post-49 have. And, you know, if you want to find a lot of artists who can do like amazing drawing from life and hyper-realist oil painting, China is a great place to go because they do like in the art academies, they have such a strong foundational training in those skills. That's absolutely true. And then you'd be hard pressed to find uh, very many uh, American artists who have that kind of background. Oh, of course not. It's all vibes uh, in art schools here now. So, I mean, yeah, sort of like getting drilled in the studio, seven hours drawing a live figure. It's, yeah. How does one become a Chinese landscape painter today? In, in, in mainland China, like, how is this as a practice developing? There's a real resurgence in, in uh, all, all kinds of traditional art forms in China, which I think is a very positive thing. Uh, uh, with in terms of landscape painting, there are there are more practitioners now than 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 there there were you know twenty years ago, and it's it's not such a a, a weird thing anymore. And and also uh, Chinese calligraphy, there I think there are a lot more people practicing Chinese calligraphy. And you know the the only way to learn these things is to do it the the old fashioned way. You you start by copying, and and then gradually you develop your own style. And I think there's a lot lot more of a an appreciation of the historical works uh, in China. And of course, with the market has something to do with it. There you know there 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 now that they have the the ability to to acquire works of art there's lots and lots of people who are who are collecting not just paintings but ceramics and other kinds of objects and i think ironically it's there is what it seems to me there is uh, developing a kind of a, a a a new type of literary culture which is to say it's not necessarily those people who were the uh the the people in, who who were the officials and the and the you know there's not the scholar official class per se it's 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 a, a lot of people who are who have been very successful uh, who have the the time and the the the, the means to collect and and to study and it's it's almost like they they are returning to to looking at art as a as an amateur avocation. 
yeah. but they're very serious. Some of the there's some independent uh, scholars who are doing all kinds of research, and they it's just because they love it. So, um, you know, thinking about contemporary China and art, it's hard not to think about uh, the sort of trend in um, in the the role that the government wants and to play in sort of constraining the possibility space of artists and. You know, there were there were some stories and everyone on the one hand was excited that we now have M plus and this enormous new, um, you know, exhibition space in Hong Kong paired with the fact that, uh, you know, you had these like quotes from like terrified curators who have no idea where the line is. Um, Arnold, uh, you know, you you referenced in some of your past lectures that during the Cultural Revolution, uh, a lot of Chinese painters just like started painting their mountains red in the hopes that that would sort of um you know, give them a little bit more um, breathing room to do what they wanted. That said, it's a little less controversial. I don't know. I feel like there's there there may be some more room, um, you know, to do this sort of uh, to do this sort of painting, and maybe maybe coming back to this stuff is almost a, a way to kind of retreat from uh, and, and find a new space to explore, which won't necessarily get you in too much trouble. Uh, any any thoughts on you know how uh, China? closing in many ways over the past decade or so is going to is going to impact the trajectory of uh, landscape painters? Well, I think I think it's kind of true that, uh, you know, it, it, uh, if you if you follow the reception of, of so-called. So, so we don't talk about literati painting anymore because that that implies a certain class. And, you know, we don't just don't want to get into that. We don't even necessarily talk about uh, you know, Guohua or or Zhongguo, Chinese paint. So now the, the 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 way around that we just talk about ink painting, but ink painting is is you know probably ninety five percent by Chinese artists. But but it it allows for the possibility that there are others and and sort of uh, not have to deal with the the uh, the politicis you know the the nationalistic part of it. And it it's rather it, it compared to the other kinds of art that is being practiced by contemporaries, it is a little bit safer now. Uh, it's it's a little more apolitical, and I think you know there there is maybe that's also part of why people have have uh, kind of there's there's been more collecting interest as well. It's it's uh, not everybody uh, again. It, it's it there. It's maybe returning to the escapist part. Where yeah. not everybody wants to be reminded about how bad things are every day, and and it's quite nice to just you know hang a nice landscape painting on your wall and just disappear into it for a few hours. Well, I mean, uh, you know, any genre can be activated for political critique, and you know, I'm thinking of 1981, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston sent one of the first exhibitions from a European or American museum to Beijing and Shanghai. And there were, I think, three paintings that were mid-century abstract expressionist works. There was a Klein, there was a Pollock, and I think there was a Motherwell or um, maybe an Ellsworth Kelly or something. And those were real points of contention um, with the government at the time who, you know, there was a sense that these pictures of nothing could be pictures of anything, ideologically speaking. And so, you know, I think that uh, th there's no frictionless, there's no frictionless genre, not even landscape painting. So where the line lies is always good to keep an eye on. Yeah. And of course, you know, 
like restoring folks' interests in ancient China and traditional culture is like a very central push of C in the contemporary uh, in the contemporary uh, CCP. I mean, at the uh, at Chinese New Year this year, there were a number of these like very cool, I guess, uh, you know, like dance shows and and kind of like 3D visualizations where you would like fly into the painting. Um, so clearly, you know, getting folks engaging with this stuff is is part of Xi's uh, mission to, you know, regain, uh, make China stand up again and be proud of itself. And 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 so even this stuff does have a, a bit of a political uh, valence to it in contemporary China. Absolutely. So. Another piece of starting to, to to build my knowledge of this universe was was starting to watch these James Cahill videos. Um, I wrote a little bit about it in my uh, sort of best of 2021 in review post on the China Talk newsletter, which you guys should all subscribe to at chinatalk.substack.com. But I would love um, for you folks who've had you know some personal interaction with him to talk a little bit about uh, the person, his influence, and and um, uh, you know what. Um, you know, what went into that uh, uh, recording process and, and why folks should consider checking it out. Joe, you want to start? I did have the, the honor uh, of uh, being able to study with Professor Cahill. I only got a master's degree, but in, in the two years or so that I studied with him, uh, it was really an extraordinary experience. So, uh, yeah, so Professor Cahill, late in his, his life, uh, after he had given, you know, hundreds and hundreds of lectures in class, he actually decided that he would do a, a whole series of lectures online for posterity covering the whole history of Chinese painting and his experience. And so what I personally learned that was most valuable was a kind of methodology, art historical methodology, uh, which involved stylistic analysis. In other words, starting with the work breaking it down in various ways. And, and what Cahill taught was how to approach a given painting, a given artist, and the kinds of questions to ask, the kind of background that you needed to, to investigate and study. You know, Cahill was part of this kind of titanic generation of people who were establishing this field of Chinese painting studies in the United States because James Cahill, late in his career, decided to sort of commit his overview lectures of the history of Chinese painting to YouTube with pretty uh, high production value technical support with really good images and working with a technical team. People like me, people in my generation, get a little extra from Cahill. Um, we get to have a sense of what his lectures were like, even if it was at a later point in his career and he wasn't dashing around the seminar room, as Arnold was describing. And of course, that generation taught from real objects. And so there would be paintings in the room during their seminars. It wasn't just books and PowerPoints and slides. Yeah. And so, um, you know, one gains a sense of his presence and aura as a person and a scholar in a way that unfortunately we don't for some of the other folks in his generation. So it's quite a personally like I, I think I'm a big fan of the the YouTube lectures with um, with, with with slides and talking over as as a sort of entry point as opposed to reading books, because you just get so much more detail and you can see more slides and you do the zooming in and like you can look at. You can you can be ingesting information while you are staring at the painting, not sort of trading off the time you're looking at the painting to like, you know, reading the little card that Joe writes on the side of the, um, uh, you know, of the paintings in an exhibition. So it really is a, a, a fantastic format 
YouTube lectures for um, for, for learning about art, and it's a and it's a real uh, it's a real blessing that there was able to um, that he was able to pull off something like that. The technology caught up to him, and he was able to stick around in order uh, long enough in order to um, make use of it. Absolutely. I mean, it, it may sound silly to point it out, but it's really important to art history. You can't read and look at a picture at the same time. And so a lecture with slides or a YouTube video is is really powerful. Arnold, so in some of your past speaking, you've mentioned this kind of other influence and other way of looking at art that you learned from the uh, from the painter C.C. Wong. How does that kind of balance and, uh, you know, offset and complement um, the way that James Cahill influenced how you uh, how you look at paintings? Sure. Well, interestingly, I was introduced to C.C. Wong by James Cahill, and they they were very good friends uh, and had spent decades uh, influencing each other, looking at paintings together, learning from one another. And C.C. Wong was an amazing character. He was born, actually, this, this puts things into perspective when you realize he was born in the Qing Dynasty uh, in 1907. And so he lived through the revolution, the first revolution and the second revolution in China. Uh, he moved, he, he emigrated to the United States in 1949. But by that time, he was already considered one of the top connoisseurs within China, a connoisseur being, you know, somebody who can look at paintings and, and, and determine authenticity, uh, relative quality, all, all these kinds of things that, that is part of what art historians do. But he, his, his approach was that of, a, uh, of an insider, a painter who's also looking at uh, works from the past and, and really uh, in a in a more traditionally Chinese approach, that was sort of the ideal. Was that uh, you didn't separate being a connoisseur, a collector, a painter yourself. That was all kind of a package deal. So you learned to paint in order to better understand old paintings. You collected paintings in in order to improve your own understanding of the art form, so that you yourself could do better paintings. And, and I think that that's something that is lacking, generally speaking, for the, for the Western art historians who are looking at it, you know, separately. And what I particularly got from um, Mr. Wong was the fact that he himself had probably the best private collection of Chinese paintings, certainly in the Western world at the time. Arnold and Joe, um, what is the, you know, what does looking at these paintings in person and being able to copy them in person as opposed to doing it from from books and prints um, add as you're trying to sort of ingest and understand and study uh, this art? Oh, that's that's a that's a, a great question. And, and I, I hope we will always have a have a place for the original works as opposed to pictures of, of the original works, because it, to me, it's like night and day. Uh, I love the fact that we have digital images. I love the fact we have YouTube. We have all of these, these uh, reference materials. But for me, uh, it's, it's only most useful if I've already viewed the original and uh, using photographs as a way of remembering uh, what I saw. But experiencing the art firsthand is 
is what it's really about. Because these are, you know, these are very subtle works that are done on materials that are extremely sensitive, you know, and you, you said you've, you've done some painting. I mean, the, the act of, of putting a, a brush with wet ink onto absorbent paper, it's, it's, it's uh, just a very, very sensitive material. And every line that you put down is always going to be there. You can't gesso over it like an oil painting. You can't erase it like a charcoal or, or pencil drawing. So every, t every line you put down will be there. And, and uh, yes, with details, you can capture, uh, you know, in, in, with details of photographs, you can, you, can see, you can see certain things, but it's really not the same thing as seeing the original and particularly uh, being able to handle the works which obviously is more difficult in, in the in the museum unless you're Joe. I mean, I would just add in to what Arnold is saying, I and mean, this is the context from the mid-20th century through to today. And then if you track it back to sort of um, the world of C.C. Wong's birth, this is just the moment when decent reproductions, colotype reproductions of paintings are happening. But essentially the world that C.C. Wong was born into was a world where you saw the real thing, or you saw a handmade copy of the real thing. And sometimes, heaven knows, the two can be very difficult to distinguish. But to have a collection meant that you got to engage with the art. Um, you know, and as Arnold says, it is an art form of supreme subtlety. Um, you know, we you could stand in the gallery and listen to Arnold rhapsodize about the very subtle gradation of tonality of ink between this brushstroke and that brushstroke. You could also listen to me do that. Any of the Chinese painting heads will talk about things that subtle that just don't come through in print. And, you know, they can be captured with photographs. Um, but looking at something on a screen is bombarding your eyes with all this light. In some ways, it's deadening to the subtleties themselves, no matter how well they're captured under specific light conditions. So if you track it back even further to, say, the late 17th century, when painting manuals started to be printed, and that was what the sort of everyman um, who could buy a book could go out and get if they couldn't afford a collection themselves, that's what they would be studying. And you could get the kind of contours of a particular artist's style, but that opportunity to look at the brushstroke and the ink and say, oh, this is what Dong Chi Chang is all about. This is what Wang Meng is all about. You just have to have the real thing. This thing is worse than useless. Um, <laughs> the mustard seed garden manual of painting. I mean, it like, because, because yeah, it's like a print, right? So it's either black or it's white. And that's not how these paintings look. However, I will say this. If you already know how to paint, it's quite useful <laughs> because you can you can look at it for certain way certain types of compositions and uh, certain details that you can then use your marvelous brushwork to actually do do a, a good a good work based on on the information it gives you. So uh, that's what I'm saying. Even with photographs, to me, uh, obviously it's a step up, but. Uh, if you already, if you don't know how to paint, it's, it's, it, a photograph is not going to teach you how. Let's do one more beat. Arnold, I have some selfish questions. Uh, where do you buy, where do you buy paints and paper? I buy it actually, you know, because I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I bought paper over the years from, uh, from various places, China, 
in, in, including Hong Kong and Taiwan. I've, I bought paper from Japan. So, so basically the answer is whenever I see paper that I like, I buy a hundred sheets and, okay. and, and just, you know, I have more paper than I'm ever going to use, but it's, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not that readily available. And as far as uh, ink, ink and brushes, um, you can find them, uh, but I, I used to travel a lot more than I do. So, so Hong Kong was always a good, good place to buy stuff. Arnold. Where should I, sitting in my Harlem apartment, buy paper and uh, and ink? Uh, yeah, there are some uh, there are some websites that have that have 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 decent stuff. The brushes are a little bit harder. It's also the it's harder to buy brushes if you if you know online if you haven't actually uh, seen them in person and tried to use them. But there are outlets that that sell sell uh, supplies. I can I can send you some links. <laughs> All right, we'll put them in the show notes. And um, one more on the sort of uh... oh, let me finish one one thing too. In terms of color, I personally tend to use uh, uh, Winsor Newton watercolors, or uh, also Japanese uh, watercolors are are fine. I don't. I don't make a big deal about how the you know the, the pigment has to be from from the motherland. It's like you know the 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 the, the quality control of like Windsor Newt is is much better than 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 anywhere else. So you know uh, I don't I don't find that interesting. The ink sticks are either from China or Japan. Gotcha. And you know you and you I talk... never used bottled ink. Okay. No bottled ink. You have to grind the ink. Is that is that is that like a spiritual like reason of getting you getting you in the zone, or are you convinced uh, there's something different to about some that? extent? That's true, but it's it's more than that. Uh, the The problem with bottled ink is it's very very dark, right? Yeah. So in order to get in order to get your grays, you have to add water. So that's sort of the opposite of of the way it should work. When you're grinding ink, you start with with uh, some water and you gradually grind and grind and grind, right? And so you're starting off with lighter ink. And as you grind more, it gets darker. So in the process of painting, generally speaking, you're going to start with light ink and, and work in darker layers as you go. Gotcha. So it doesn't make sense to water it down. It may, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the opposite way it's supposed to happen. Plus you can, you know, as you're grinding the ink, you can you know, center your chi and all that stuff. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, uh, selfish question number two. Uh, you talked about CC Wong kind of just like every day is like a new painter and a new adventurer. Um, but kind of before you get to that, level of being able to kind of like look at anyone and 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 do your best shot uh of 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 uh of uh what is it of like copying them um what is what is the um uh do you have like a like a favorite book or like a corsus honorum of like start with this all start with this painter and go to this painter and go to that painter um has anyone made like that like syllabus of uh of uh of of you know for a second of you know yeah has has anyone made like the 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 learning how to 
do Chinese painting syllabus complete with examples um, that you'd encourage folks to follow, follow I along think, with? I, I'm sure that people have done it, but I, I don't know that I would agree with their syllabus. I mean, I, I think you, you, first of all, you should find something you like that, 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 you know, that talks to you, that communicates with you, and then uh, find a, maybe a, a version of, 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 of that, that you, you know, start small, you don't have to copy a whole painting, but start with, with uh, a section and, and, and see, but before that, I, you know, the, the important thing is to know how to, to uh, hold the brush and stuff like that to begin with. Um, so basically you'll have to come visit. Okay. All right. That's what I was hoping for. Uh, <laughs> now we can end the show. Uh, Joe and Arnold, thanks so much for being on Ch part of China talk. Thanks for listening to the end. You guys out there. Um, if you enjoyed the show and want me, uh, to bring these folks back to talk about forgeries, to talk about the differences between Japanese, Taiwanese, mainland and American scholarship on Chinese, um, uh, on Chinese tradition, Arnold also spent a lot of the time, uh, a lot of his professional life in auction houses and can talk and, and we can chat about the sort of evolution of, uh, you know, how the, the, the market interests and how that's, how that's changed over the past, uh, fast few decades. Uh, let me know and I'll have them back on. Actually, you don't even have to let me know because I'm going to invite them on anyways. So it's up to, it's up to Arnold and Joe. What a treat. Uh, thanks again, you two. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.